So again, we'll begin with Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him, and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. But I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? Well, he said, Well, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Well, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to the other, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, write eighty. So the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. But one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. Well, so we are doing a uh, kind of character study of various characters in scriptures who experience God's generosity and respond with a life of generosity towards God and towards others. So when I first described uh, this Adventures of Generosity series to a church member back in Feb, you know, I, I went through the list. I said, you know, we're going to talk about Abraham and how Abraham had freedom to borrow against this secure and promised future. We're going to talk about Boaz, who shared how he could best bless a blesser and Ruth. We're going to talk about David, who needed adversity in his life to depend on God. And in his dependence on God, out of that overflowed generosity to others. And then I said, and finally we're going to do something on uh, Jesus' money manager. And the person turned to me and said, oh, you're going to do a sermon on Judas. I said, well... <laughs> And immediately took that as a challenge to me as a, as a, as a preacher. I was like, man, if I, could, if I could redeem Judas's life in a sermon, I would like, <laughs> that would just set me on another level, right? Or make me like a career politician to redeem someone's life like that <laughs> through a speech. Because Judas, we're told in the Gospels, held the money bag, quote-unquote, among the 12 apostles. He was the accountant. He was the treasurer. And as we started to talk about it, I asked the question, Jesus did have a do-over. Who do, who do you think he'd pick as a money manager? One of the things that occasionally is described to me over the last five years of living here from those in the banking industry living in a banking environment is the kind of person, the kind of employee that's valued in a Class A bank. 
A different friend once explained to me through a real example that even if it's not provable in a court of law, but you can basically tell someone has found loopholes to launder money, you just try to find a way to get rid of them. You try to find someone whether it's buying out their contract, whether it's settling with them somehow. If you know that they put your company in jeopardy, and you in jeopardy, by stealing, find a way to get rid of them. You can no longer trust them. When it comes to handling money, which so easily corrupts, you can't trust a dishonest money manager. So along comes Jesus, who leads off his longest discourse on managing God's money, since all of it comes from God. And in this parable says, the master commended the dishonest manager. So what are we supposed to do with that? Right? What is going on here? Are we supposed to set up our own Ponzi scheme as a church? I don't think we're supposed to be called Bernie Madoffs anytime soon, but this is what we do know. This passage does set up well for us to study this morning. In fact, it might be the only straightforward thing about this passage is how nicely it sets up. There's a manager, a test, and then a master owner. A manager test, a master owner, verses 1 through 9, verses 10 through 12, and verse 13. That's how we'll kind of flow through this passage together. And the flow of this passage is a bit like the peeling of an onion. You know that classic analogy? You get the onion out, you start to you see what's on the surface. And on the surface of this passage, Jesus gives us this outer layer, which is sort of a bottom line, how to work out being Jesus' money manager. What you're supposed to actually do with what he entrusts to you. But then you peel back a layer, and you understand that Jesus has a deeper purpose with money. Namely, to test us, to test our hearts, to test our priorities. And then he pulls back one more layer. The core. Who or what really owns us? Who or what really masters us? So that's what we're going to see this morning. First, the first kind of layer, the outer layer of Jesus' teaching here is about the manager who demonstrates generous self-interest. Which might sound like a paradox, right? Or an oxymoron at least. Generous self-interest. The master commences dishonest manager followed by an implicit, I am Jesus and I approve this message. But what does Jesus actually say in verse 8 as he goes on? Master commended the dishonest manager, look there, for his shrewdness. Not for his deceitfulness, not for his dishonesty, for his shrewdness. Shrewd describes an action or a decision marked by practical, hard-headed intelligence. Someone who's focused on providing a practical, creative solution is shrewd. But is he moral? There are two likely possibilities that wouldn't have made these managers' actions so sleazy. Let me, let me go over them with you here. First of all, um, it could be that the manager removed his own commission. So he's in trouble. He goes to these people right, who owe his master money. All right, one option could be that what he's doing here is he's removing his own commission, sacrificing his own money, not that of the master. But having a 50% commission, even in a parable, is very unlikely. Right? And there's two examples here, 120%, 150%. It's possible and fairly shrewd, but more possible and much more shrewd is the second possibility. And that is, he deducted the interest charge from the debt. And in doing so, he lined up with what's known as the Mosaic Law. The law that all of God's people at this time, when Christ was living, were still under. 
Okay? The Jews were forbidden to lend money with interest. According to Exodus 22-25, you can read that some other time. But they often got around this by lending in kind, asking for payments of oil and of wheat and such things instead of money in exchange for property. So I will give you property upon which you can make money. You can produce crops. You can support your family. But in turn, you're going to give me some of that property. You're going to give me wheat. You're going to give me oil, etc. Right? Sounds like a fair deal, except that it just kind of gets around the intent of God's law, which is not to exploit others, especially those who are already maybe poor and need land. So he deducted the interest on the bill, 20 or 50% as we see here. This was actually would be a best case scenario in the world, immortal words really, of Michael Scott. It would be a win-win-win. Remember that? Not just a win-win, a win-win-win. I'm going to tell you why. It would be a win for those in debt. Obviously, the person in debt having their debt forgiven is a win. It's like those credit commercials actually being true here, right? You can cut your debt in half by calling this number right here. And then you see like, like two screens of fine print. It'd be a win for the, mas- for, sorry, for the uh, manager. He either gains friends in high places or somehow he saves his job. And thirdly, it's actually a win for the master. He both gets some money that's clearly outstanding to him, and this action brings him back in line with God's law. It brings him back in line with God's heart, his intention for the law, which was to actually care for people who were disadvantaged, to not exploit those who could easily be exploited. Do you see there? This is so creative in the way that he manages the money. In that it's a, it's a win for him, it's a win for neighbor, it's a win for master. The master would have seen this as remarkably shrewd. He knows that if he objects to the, man, to the uh, manager, it would expose him as a lawbreaker before God and others. He knows he says, oh, whoa, 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 don't do that because I want the interest. He knows that he's caught. And instead of saying, man, hate that guy, you're fired. He commends them. He says that is actually incredibly clever, incredibly wise, and in a strange way, incredibly generous. And we read verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The application of the story is right here in verse 9. It's the ending, and it's remarkably realistic of Jesus. Sometimes we think of Jesus as teaching is just some pie-in-the-sky ideal. But actually, Jesus is remarkably realistic here. When it comes to generosity, everyone begins from a place of self-interest. That's where Jesus begins, right? He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The idea is, be smart how you use money. Make friends for you so they might benefit you. Some people are generous. So the people will like them. They'll care about them. They'll respect them finally. Some people are generous to balance out self-gratification. Right? They have one part of their life where they indulge and they self-gratify so they want to actually be generous in another part of their life that makes them feel more balanced. Kind of blots out the guilt. Some of us start from a place of being generous because we just want to, f- frankly, feel better about ourselves. The people are generally, they start from a place of being generous in order to get something. Jesus does not fight this impulse. 
Rather, he advocates a slight redirection. The use of money to make friends. To win them to an eternity-securing gospel. An eternity-securing gospel. And now, since they're in eternity, one day I might be welcomed to eternity. Why? Because you want something for yourself. To be received by them into eternal dwellings, verse 9. And to have entrusted to you true riches. So, it is a self-interested generosity. As you give to others, it's not just because you're totally altruistic. It's all about the other person. I'm so unselfish. It's actually, strangely, to help you. It's just by being generous with others, you help yourself. Which is strange, right? Jesus condones selfishness. But think about it. What is the goal of your faith? What does the Bible literally say is the goal of your faith? Kevin read this for us earlier, 1 Peter 1.9. The goal of your faith is the salvation of your soul. The goal of your faith is the salvation of your soul. Now, how do I continue to work out and bear fruit for my salvation? Show that I am saved? That's where the catch comes. Mark 8.35. Where Jesus says, whoever tries to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In other words, by dying to self, looking outward towards God and being generous with others, you're showing that you're saving your life. You're bearing the fruit of saving your life. And that's the catch. By being generous with others, you help yourself. Jesus doesn't resist that impulse. He just redirects it. Randy Alcorn says this very wisely in in his book, The Treasure Principle. He says, selfishness is when we pursue gain, this is important, at the expense of others. Selfishness is when we pursue gain at the expense of others. Now think about what that eliminates. One thing it eliminates is salvation, eternal riches. It's like the one thing that there's enough for everyone. There's a, a plentiful, unlimited supply for every person. So the fact that you want the true riches, that you want that commendation, and that's why you're generous to others, that's the place you start from, that's okay. It's not at the expense of others. So if that's you, that is a great place to start with generosity. And that's where we can start applying this passage. In fact, in a nutshell this morning, which might be a surprising nutshell, but it's right here in the teaching of Jesus. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Here's the message this morning. Use money for your own eternal good by making friends through a gospel connection. By making friends for the sake of the gospel. Making a gospel connection with them. Use money for your own good, but to make friends for a gospel connection. Here's some examples. Use money to treat a friend to lunch or coffee. You don't have to immediately tell them why you want them to trust Jesus or invite them even to church right away. But you can start just by asking them their story. What's your story? And do you have any spiritual journey in your life? I'd love to hear about it. You make a friend for the sake of establishing a gospel connection with them. You use, that's why you use money. Because everyone here probably has a uh, mooch in their life. By mooch, I mean someone who asks them constantly, maybe for the same thing over and over. Everyone's got one. I think God just assigns each person. A little bit of a test, maybe. And I want to encourage you Use money for the sake of continuing that friendship. Maybe they don't know Christ. Certainly sometimes we think they must not know Christ. They keep mooching off me. Jeez. 
right? Let's be have that attitude. But continue to use money on them to keep establishing, show that there's a God in your life who's self-giving. Build that relationship. Make friends for the sake of the gospel by means of unrighteous wealth. Practical shrewdness commended by Jesus requires creativity, just like the manager showed, towards forging gospel-connected friendships. So there's an organization called Young Life, which you'll hear more about in just a little bit um, through my friend Scott. They were sending largely unchurched teenagers to this summer camp where they uh, would have friendships built with them. And at the bridge of that friendship would come the hearing of the good news about Jesus. You spend a week with people who loved you, who prayed for you, who cared for you. And in that relationship, a relationship that also extended during the year for your young life leaders, you'd hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But many could not afford to go to the summer camp. So uh, one of the leaders in my area, that I was a part of at this time, got an idea. They gathered all the, all the members of Young Life, all the youth involved in this particular area, and we divided into 15 teams of 10. All right, so 15 teams of 10 people each, all teenagers. And uh, the leaders all pitched in so that each group started with a $10 bill. So the leaders all pitched in. They gave of themselves. They gave $10. And the idea was to go around the neighborhoods and trade $10 for something better. So you go to a house, you give that person at the house $10 and ask them, can you give me something worth more than $10? We're doing this fundraiser for Young Life. Here's what it is. We want kids to go to camp. We want them to hear this great message that will help their lives. And so they would get something. So one group, it was pretty cool, they gave them $10. The first thing the person gave them was an almost brand new lawnmower. And they kept exchanging it. And you could see these, these teenagers just walking around a neighborhood with a lawnmower, right? Like, and, you know, just looking kind of crazy. <laughs> but they, walk, they walked around and, and eventually kept training. They trained, and I kid you not, they received at the end of the day a flatbed truck with 40,000 miles on it. A truck! They received a car! I mean, that was one story. Another story ended with uh, receiving, actually, uh, treasury bonds, like U.S. treasury bonds uh, from this elderly lady who went to the bank with them and, like, cashed them. Um, now, did some groups return with Christmas trees, and one group returned with, like, a life-size statue of Colonel Sanders from KFC? Yes. That was not really helpful, necessarily, towards trip. But 11 kids got to attend camp who wouldn't have been able to go otherwise to forge friendships and hear the gospel. See, that's, that's, a create, that's a shrewd use of money. It all started with each leader giving 10 bucks. A lot of university students in there. Back to the parable, this manager was soon to be fired. It was with time slipping away. That window was closing. Time was of the essence to say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be creative and make this plan. Similarly, we are called think, to make friends in a timely fashion with our resources. Don't lose the window of opportunity. You have to give. I know it's worrisome. I don't know how much I have. This is how God wants us to steward his money. We have a window every year where a quarter of our island lives for four days on a beach. Four days all kind of gathered together, living life together, enjoying times together. And that's why we got some of those people, a number of commandants together to get their advice on this, to do an initiative where we will spend money to make a gospel connection with people. Which is going to be, we're calling Give an Unconditionally Good Friday. And the idea behind this is most people come 
to a service for Good Friday. We ask people to come to us. Nothing inherently wrong with that. But instead, what we're going to do is we're going to die a little bit to self, get a little bit uncomfortable, and go out in teams to a beach. Hand out something practical that costs us money. Mosquito wipes. That's what was advised to us. Mosquito wipes. And give them to different tents. Just with a little sticker on that says, this is our way of serving you. It's our way of saying, God loves you. No strings attached. And that's what we'll say to people. And we hope that it fosters some conversations. Hey, why are you guys doing this? What's going on? Not for self-promotion, but to make that gospel connection. So we're serious when we say we want every person in this church to be a part of something like that. If you're here on island, every person in this church to take 90 minutes out of their lives, bring your kids, Good Friday, and die to self in response to Jesus' death to you. Use money to forge a gospel connection between you and another person. Now, in one sense, we could stop here and you have your homework for the day, for the week. But Jesus peels back another layer, a little deeper. He says all of this is a test for true riches, as we see in verses 10 through 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? First of all, what are the true riches? Let's talk about that for a minute. In the parable, it's pretty clear, the parable portion, verses 1 through 9, that Jesus is not referring to salvation, but to eternal commendation, to that eternal well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. We know this because he's talking about, says in verse 8, the sons of light. He's already talking about the disciples, the people who will trust in Jesus. Remember, he's addressing the disciples as well. It's not talking about salvation, but eternal commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. Additional rewards that Jesus might choose to give because you were faithful with what he gave you. In verses 10 through 12, Jesus expands on this to include the true riches which I believe are God's increased use of you here on earth. God's increased use of you here on earth. That's why he says, um, who will entrust you true riches? Not referring to eternal life. Referring to things you can entrust and still steward while here on this earth. We see this in Jesus' famous parable of the talents. The one who is faithful will be entrusted with more. Additional talents, additional gifts, additional strength, additional influence to forge friendships through gospel connections, right? Give you more influence in relationships. To talk about the gospel, to share the good news about Jesus with people. To give you additional gifting. What is gifting for? It's to build others up with, by, by grace. That's what gifts are. They're little graces, little gifts. And so money is the test. And I have a little testimony for you on this point. I can say that for so long in my life, I failed to pass this test, this generosity test. In fact, I've read this passage probably a dozen times, and it wasn't until I feel like December of this past year, of 2014, that I realized that money is the little thing. That, look at this passage. Whoever's dishonest in little is also dishonest in much. I realized, oh, wait a minute, money is the little thing. I see, guys, I've always thought that money was the big thing. Money is the big test. Money is the big sort of moment that if I could just be generous with my whole life in response to what God has done for me, I'll finally have arrived. I'll finally have made it. I don't know if you feel like that. 
You're like, I'm, I'm going to get there. Generosity feels like the graduate school of the Christian life. That's a book we recently read, said. Like, I'll, that, that's, I'm going to get there someday. But it turns out, we read in this passage, that actually the true riches are past money. Being generous with your life, being generous with money, is the little test. That's the little test. Now at first, when I was cut to the quick with this, I was devastated. So many true riches I missed out to this point because I had not been generous with my life. But on the other hand, it's also encouraging, as Jesus usually is, that God has so much more in store for me if I would just be generous. And since then, God's saying to me, Ryan, get ready then, because I have a series of generosity tests (laughs) coming your way. And why not? God has blessed me so much, blessed our family so much. Let's do this. And he has. I'm not going to talk about all of them. But I'm grateful he has. Because now, as I'm faithful with that, as God challenges me with that, I'm not perfect, but as as I keep trying to respond to him in faithfulness, the true riches are coming, the influence, the, the care for others, the relationships. Jesus still peels back one more layer when we get to the owner. Owning by giving. Side note, I, I use owner instead of master here in part because uh, we can all relate to owner. It's the same concept. No one says master anymore. Um, what's interesting is throughout this passage, Jesus uses the Greek Standard Greek word for money or possessions until verse 13, where he uses a term called mammon. It's not entirely clear, but this seems to refer, this term, capital M, mammon, to a Assyrian god at the time, the Syrian god of money. At least we know that Jesus is trying to make a point. He's trying to personify money. He doesn't do this with sex, with lust, with pride, with vanity. But there's something so insidious about the love of money. He feels the need to point out, you need to know this is a functional God. This is a functional and rival God to me. This is something or someone that people serve which seeks to own you. Like a real personal master. may not be a God in reality, but it's a God functionally. So Jesus props up mammon as a chief rival to himself. What is your God? It's that which absorbs your affection, your attention, your time, and your treasure. What, what absorbs those things for you? It's in short, whatever owns us. It's interesting because the old pagans were pretty upfront about it. Isn't that interesting? Like, how many of you guys have ever had to like, study something in Greek mythology? Raise your hand. Okay. Remember the old pagans, at least they were upfront about it, right? They had... They're gods for romance, the god of seduction, the god of war, the god of material wealth, and they just called it that. It's much more subtle for us, but also much more blinding. We don't realize we're worshiping a functional god. Here are some questions to ask yourself to figure out, what do I really worship in my life? What do I really serve? What really owns me? What do you daydream about in the car? After you drop off the kids, right? Between meetings, on your way to work? What consumes your mind? What do you wander off to? What distracts you during a conversation? Right? When people are talking, they're maybe talking about the same thing. Maybe often happens to me when someone's, maybe, maybe they're complaining about the same thing. And 
You just sort of trail off. What are you thinking about? It's usually what owns you. Usually your functional God. What makes you later say of someone at a cocktail party, man, I really like them. I really like them. Really, well, what, what was it that you talked about? I bet you liked them because you talked about the same, the same God, whatever it is. What are the articles you choose to read from a news feed or post it online? And what topic makes you happy that I'm preaching about when you see the sermon outline in the bulletin? And which frustrates you? Ah, again. Talking about wealth. Money may or may not be the thing that absorbs your time, your attention, your treasure, your affections. But the love of it might help you get the things that do. Jesus says something very certain about mammon we may have missed in verse 9. When it fails. Did you read that? I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails. Jesus is very certain. You can worship this God, but money will fail you. It will fail your heart's true desire. It will offer you momentary victories. Even the highest of highs money will offer you. But if you serve money, you'll use people. You'll, you'll despise both them and eventually the money itself. If you serve God, you'll use money. And if you serve money, you'll use people. If you serve God, you'll use money. To love people. To make gospel connections with them. Let me try to connect these threads together for a minute if we can. The owner, the test, the manager. It's interesting because Jesus usually starts with the heart, doesn't he? Then he works outward. Think of the woman at the well. You think of a number of people Jesus confronts, and he starts here in the heart. Then he works his way outward. Then he talks about what do you really value. Then he gives you the moral of the story, how to obey. And you think this how Jesus would teach about managing money. But instead, he starts with, here's how you steward God's money. Here's what you do, which shows you what you value, which gets to your heart. Why do you think he does it that way? Why doesn't he start with the heart? Why does he start with our outward actions, which is so unlike Jesus? I think it's because Jesus knows how blinding, how corrupting, and how deadly money can be. In other words, Jesus isn't primarily making a point about who is your functional God, but he recognizes how insidious, insidious and deceitful mammon can be. And so he's leading with, here's how you can keep God first place in your life. You've got to fight for it, guys. You've got to fight. You've got to fight by regularly giving away money to make gospel connections with people. Not hold on to it, but give it away to care for others with it. To make connections in which people might see that you love them. And when they see that you love them, you might make gospel connections. That's not only good for them, it's good for you. It'll kill your idol. It'll kill the God of wealth. And like I said before, we're first week of teaching on this. No one's ever come to me and said, Ryan, I struggle with covetousness or greed. People will say, man, I struggle with pride. I struggle with lust. I struggle with vanity. No one ever says, I struggle with spending too much money on myself. We won't see it. That's why Jesus gives us tools here to fight it. So often we think of grace coming through forgiveness of sin, but sometimes grace comes in the form of giving us a way of escape, escaping a functional God like money. You remember that old story of the faithful Christian man enduring ferocious storms that we were going to soon flood every nearby home in the village. And he was warned, despite the warning, though, from police, 
from officials to evacuate his home. He said, you know, I'm going to stay and trust that God will save me. Then the neighbors, his next door neighbor said, hey, you know, we have an extra seat in our car. Come with us. And he said, no, 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 I'll, I'll stay and trust that God will save me. The waters rose when a friend came by in a canoe. Hey, I have room in my canoe. Come, we'll canoe out of here together. The man says, no, no, God will cease the storm for me. Finally, a police motorboat came by. Sir, please come with us. No, no, God will rescue me. And of course, the man drowned. And when he was in heaven, he said, God, I don't understand. I, I trusted you. Why didn't you intervene and save me? To which God replies, I sent you a warning, a car, a canoe, and a motorboat. What more were you looking for? There's no need, guys, to look elsewhere. For the functional God of money, He sends help and grace from worshiping it. To regularly use it to make friends through a gospel connection. It's for your own good. And then He'll entrust you with the true riches. Let's pray. Jesus, You're so brilliant in the way You do this. You remind us how powerful money is, but at the end, you, you lead off by reminding us that it's a fight. That you've sent us away to fight against this insidious functional God that can take over our lives, that can master us, that can control us. We worry about it. We think about it. We wonder how we can get more. We spend it on ourselves. We use it for self-gratification. And so you give us an alternative. You give us a rescue plan, a way out. You say, use it. Use it to forge friendships through which you can make a gospel connection so that eternity might infiltrate this otherwise unrighteous wealth. The most secure thing we can do then, Jesus, for our relationship with you is in keeping more money. The most secure thing we can do for our lives is to give it away. Please help us be generous with our lives because you have been a self-giving God to us. Thank you so much. We pray this all in your name. Amen.